0: Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown. Across the table from me is Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Hello, everybody. We came back from... Our little meetup in Seattle where we saw a bunch of people. That was great. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. And we had really good mochi nut donuts. Mm. Oh my God. It was nice to be able to put donut money to use to buy donuts for (laughs) everybody. Yeah, it was a good meetup. Yeah, it was really good. I had fun We are ordinary canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history let's get to it put on your toque grab yourself a double double and a nanaimo bar it's time to scarf down some dark poutine fresh Fresh. are you calling me fresh you're fresh i am in the first part of this two-part story in saskatoon saskatchewan on the morning of january 31, 1969 a 12-year-old girl on the way to school stumbled upon the body of gail miller a 20-year-old nurse's aide she was laying in the snow in an alleyway gail had been raped murdered and discarded by her killer in the snow as there'd been a number of sexual assaults in the city, police were under enormous pressure to solve the murder, and soon their attention turned to 16-year-old David Edgar Milgard. He'd been in the neighborhood at a home nearby the alley where Gale's body lay on the morning of the murder. Witnesses later claimed that he'd been seen with blood on his clothing, and they gave other incriminating information to the police. Milgard was subsequently arrested and charged with Gale's murder. In this episode, we'll hear how exactly a year after the murder, David Milgard was convicted of the murder and sentenced to a term of life in prison. Justice, it appeared, had been served. We'll find out that that was not the case at all. After serving 23 hellish years in prison, David Milgard, who'd always maintained his innocence, was finally exonerated by DNA evidence that pointed to another man as Gail Miller's killer. You are listening to Dark Poutine, episode 225, Tragedy Times 2, Gail Miller, and David Milgard, part 2. The day before David Milgard's jury trial was to start, witness Ron Wilson dropped what the Crown determined to be a bombshell. Wilson was claiming that mutual friends of he and David Milgard's, Craig Melnick and George Lapchuk, had told Wilson about a supposed confession made by Milgard while they were partying in a Regina motel room after the murder. Everyone in the room was under the influence of drugs at the time, including Milgard, Melnick. Said that the story of Gail Miller's killing came on television around 11 p.m. and Lapchuk teased David Milgard about it. Milgard apparently made light of Lapchuk's ribbing, knelt on the bed with a pillow between his legs, made stabbing motions, and said, I stabbed her. I killed her 14 times. Fucking bitch. Then rolled over on his side and laughed. Melnick said he was surprised by Milgard's reaction. Melnick didn't know whether or not Milgard was kidding, but also claimed that David looked serious about it. There was a silence in the room for some time afterward, and that was the last anyone said of it. Uh, Did everyone in that room corroborate what was said? No, and we'll get into that later. The police didn't interview everybody who was in the room. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. David's defense attorney, Calvin Tallis, tried to keep the reenactment out of the trial as it would be prejudicial against Milgard but it was ultimately allowed. David's defense team only had a short amount of time to interview these surprise witnesses. The Crown Prosecution began dramatically laying out its evidence in the case, including crime scene photos and an autopsy report. Sergeant Bruce Painter of the RCMP lab gave testimony that the semen found at the scene was of human origin and contained A antigens, so that it came from a person who had the blood type A. That person had secreted antigens into his bodily fluids. He could not rule out the possibility that it also might have come from an AB secretor. Milgard's blood type was determined to be type A. However, a test of Milgard's saliva did not disclose A antigens, leading to the belief that he was a non secretor. Calvin Tallis argued that as Milgard appeared to be a non secretor, it was impossible that the semen was his. As roughly 36% of people in Canada are blood type A, it was not the strongest piece of evidence anyway. Just a part of what the Crown hoped would paint the larger picture, leading the jury toward the presumption of guilt for David Milgard. So there's
1: no DNA back then. No. And so they're relying on one of the most popular blood types. Mm -hmm. And they've kind of essentially proven that the semen
0: wasn't his. They found out that he wasn't a secretor later on. I can't say that word secretor without laughing. I know. Ron Wilson helped the prosecution a lot. His earlier claims that he and Milgard had only been apart for a few moments to two minutes after the car became stuck had now expanded to 15 minutes, and that Ron had walked a number of blocks away from the car looking for a service station. Ron also now said that he'd seen a blood spot on David Milgard's pants no bigger than one and a half to two inches in diameter.
1: So this witness seems a little bit unreliable. Was there um, a strong cross-examination of why he was changing his story over time and adding these details? Yes. Okay. But,
0: you know... Didn't go far. No. I mean, what, yeah. From the Star Phoenix newspaper, quote, Wilson said that after looking for a service station, he returned to the car and found Miss John in the car by herself, screaming hysterically. He said that when Milgard returned to the car, he had blood on the front of his clothing, end quote. Wilson also spoke about having found the cosmetics bag in the glove box and how David Milgard had tossed it out of the moving car when he'd asked if anyone knew to whom it belonged. Wilson also testified that Milgard had mentioned hitting a woman with a knife while stealing her purse on the morning of Gail Miller's murder, and that Milgard had claimed to have, quote, fixed her, but she should be okay. Albert Cadrane's reliability as a witness was questionable. He did not present as the sharpest tool in the shed, but he was the one who'd first alerted police to Milgard as a potential suspect. So he was important to the Crown's case. Albert testified about seeing blood on Milgard's pants and shirt tail on the morning of the murder, while Milgard and Wilson were changing in his home. Isn't this the guy that got the $2,000
1: reward after suddenly remembering all these things?
0: Yes, it is. Mm. From the trial transcript, Cadrain. Well, first he had a brown coat, and it was all chewed up by acid, and he had a rip in the crotch of his pants, and there was blood on his clothes. Caldwell, the prosecutor. Who was this? Cadrain. David. Caldwell. And where was that? Cadrain. On his shirt and on his pants. Caldwell. And in what area of the clothes? Cadrain. Well, just below the belt and a little above the stomach area. A little above. So where are
1: these supposedly bloody clothes? Are they Have they been entered into evidence?
0: Well, no, they couldn't enter them into evidence because they weren't there. So it's all hearsay? Yeah. Okay. But, so, (laughs) what's interesting about the bloody clothes and other people testifying about them is you have David Milgard saying, I can't remember where I put them. And then, so that would lead the police to think that he's lying. Mm -hmm. But maybe he legitimately couldn't remember where he'd put them because they weren't important to him. And they were destroyed from that battery acid as well. Right, exactly. But... You know, and maybe these, quote, blood spots that people saw were battery acid on the clothes.
1: Or if he was like me, I always have ketchup stains
0: down the front of my shirt. Well, sure. But at the same time, it's like, you know, this is where it gets problematic. Police Mm -hmm. think, well, he, he must be lying if he doesn't remember where they are, or if he's telling us he doesn't remember where he, where they are but maybe he legitimately doesn't remember. There's a lot of bleeps that are piling up. Yeah, exactly. Nicole John testified too. She recalled Milgard having thrown the cosmetics bag out the window, but she stopped short of saying she'd seen blood on David's trousers. Nicole also said that she'd seen two knives in Wilson's car.
1: So a second witness didn't confirm that there was blood on the clothes. Yep. After he'd gone away for maybe two and maybe 15 minutes. Right, and maybe
0: (laughs) did some other things and all of this stuff. From the Star Phoenix, quote, While en route to Saskatoon, she said she saw two knives in the car, one a maroon-handled paring knife and the other a hunting knife with a bone handle, which Milgard was holding. She was unable to recall where in the car she had seen the paring knife. She also said she had seen each knife only on one occasion. End quote. She did not repeat that she had witnessed David Milgard stab Gail Miller as she had claimed in her May 24, 1969 statement to Saskatoon police. This was kind of important. Interestingly, the judge then allowed the Crown to read Nicole's statement from that day, in which she claimed to have seen the murder. Nicole said that at the time, she took drugs, including LSD, hash, and THC, perhaps twice a week, and she has sometimes had hallucinations. They'd all been doing a lot of drugs at the time, she claimed. Crown Prosecutor Caldwell then asked Nicole if what she'd said on May 24th was true, to which Nicole said, I don't know. At this point, Justice Benz chimed in. According to the trial transcript, he said, quote, In respect to the statement that this witness admits giving, the only evidence that can be considered against the accused are the portions of the statement which the witness has accepted under oath in the witness box. Any statement that she has not admitted to being the truth is not evidence against the accused. End quote. The jury, Bent said, was only to look at the statement as the Crown's attempt to prove or disprove the credibility of the witness, and not as actual evidence. The damage had been done, though. The jury had heard loudly and clearly Caldwell reading Nicole's earlier statements in which she claimed to have seen David dragging a woman into the alleyway and stabbing her. You
1: know, I always laugh when I'm watching a court drama and the judge says, the jury will ignore that. Yeah. Like, how are they going to ignore it? So in this case, you have one person saying they're bloody clothes, one not saying but there's nobody closes evidence.
0: And also now she's not saying she hadn't said that she saw him do anything. And then there's like, maybe there's this, maybe there's that. But then the, the lawyer, the Crown, reads into evidence in front of the jury what she had supposedly said to the police. And then she's saying, don't really know right but but they're saying please ignore this information that was just read out that was just read out to you where nicole john said to police earlier on i saw david milgard murder this woman drag her into the alley and murder this woman this is the very important point right and then the judge says well just just ignore that just ignore that you can't unring a bell uh, to coin a phrase absolutely not Another blow to Milgaard's defense was when Craig Melnick and George Lapchuk testified about Milgaard's supposed confession in the Regina Motel Room. As with many defendants, which is their right, David Milgard was not called to testify in his own defense. On January 31, 1970, exactly a year after Gail Miller's murder, the front page of the Star Phoenix newspaper carried the headline, Jury finds Milgard guilty. The brief story read: David Edgar Milgard, seventeen of Regina, was found guilty of non-capital murder in Queen's Bench Court today and sentenced to life imprisonment by Mr. Justice A. H. Bents. Milgard, dressed in a green suit with a gold shirt and tie, half smiled when the verdict was given. He smiled at the jury members when they entered the courtroom. The jury one woman and 11 men deliberated for just over 11 hours, excluding the time taken for meals and sleeping. They went out at 12.17 p.m. Friday and were kept under guard overnight at a nearby hotel. At 1 a.m. they retired for the night, returning at 10 a.m. About 30 spectators were on hand to see the finish of the nine-day trial, which attracted hundreds of people. After the sentence was given, many teenage girls in the court started to cry. They were the same girls who the night before had waited for a verdict and told reporters, quote, there is no other excitement in the city. During the trial, the Crown called 45 witnesses and the defense did not call any witnesses. TDR Caldwell was the prosecutor and defense counsel was Cal Tallis, assisted by Ian Disbury. The parents of Milgard, who attended the trial each day, appeared stunned by the verdict. Mrs. Milgard, her face ashen, stared into the courtroom and her husband placed his hand on her arm as the verdict was read. End quote. "As appeals of the decision began, it became apparent that there had been a number of missteps in the prosecution of David Milgard. Another woman had reported an incident on the morning of January 31, 1969 at 7:07 a.m., approximately 8 blocks from where Gail Miller's body was found. A police officer had written unrelated assault on the top of his statement. As a result, the Crown Prosecutor Caldwell did not consider it relevant to the prosecution of David Milgard, and he did not provide a copy to David's defense attorney, Calvin Tallis. Current practice is that the statement should be provided and it would be up to the defense counsel to decide its relevance. However, in those days, police exercised discretion in their choice of material sent to the prosecutor, and the prosecutor in turn used his discretion in deciding what would be helpful for the defense. At the time of this event, David Milgard was believed to have been on his way to the Traveller Motel, so the timeline didn't fit. Discretion, that's an interesting word. Right. It seems like they didn't want to share this as
1: evidence because it went against their case. Right. And facts are facts. Just because it's inconvenient doesn't mean you leave it out. Mm-hmm. In, if you're really searching for justice,
0: right? But here, yeah, this is the thing. This is why it's more ensured now that this kind of thing is shared with the defense. Mm. It's, it's like all the evidence gathered is shared with the defense now, whereas before police were like, well, it's not really connected to the case. So maybe they legitimately believe that it was not connected to the case and just, you know, oh, overlooked it. I'm glad they fixed that because police aren't lawyers. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Correct. There was also the glaring question of the other sexual assaults and attempted assaults that police at first had presumed might be connected to Gail Miller's murder. Milgard had been provably not in Saskatoon at the time of those assaults, so if he were truly guilty of Gail Miller's slaying, they could not possibly be connected. To refresh from the last episode, victim one of the sexual assault group was raped on October 22, 1968, Relevant documents were read in prior to her later testimony. The attacker had used a knife in the attack. In them, she described her attacker as five foot two to five foot four inches tall, around 18 years old with dark hair hanging over his face. David Milgard, taller, slimmer and younger, did not match this description. Victim 2 described the attacker who raped her on November 13, 1968 as a man of 18 to 25 years old, 5'5", with dark hair which hung over his forehead, wearing a white hard hat and smelling of oil and gas. He'd used a knife. Victim three was attacked on November 29, 1968. According to her statement, it was by a man with a knife about twenty years old, five foot six inches tall with long, dark hair. He was frightened off by an approaching vehicle before he could complete the rape. The victim from the attack that occurred on January 31st, 1969, she said the time was exactly 7.07 a.m. because she'd looked at her wristwatch, but always kept it a few minutes fast. She described her attacker as 5'5 or 5'6 inches tall wearing a three-quarter length dark suede or leather jacket with a fur collar. He wore only one glove on his left hand. He had a darker complexion, possibly Métis. Also, none of this matching David Milgard. Less than a month after David's conviction, there was yet another sexual assault. With Milgard in prison, it definitely could not have been him. At approximately 8 25 PM on the evening of Saturday, February 21, 1970, another victim was sexually assaulted. The attacker followed the woman home in the bus and attacked her in the vicinity of Avenue V at 20th Street in Saskatoon. He grabbed her from behind, put his hand over her mouth, tore her coat off, and hit her four or five times. The woman tried to kick him and pull her attacker's hair, and she bit his finger. The woman had told police that she thought she would recognize her assailant if she saw him again. Once again, the victim's description of her attacker closely fit that of a man described in the other four instances. After that last assault in February, the assault stopped in Saskatoon. But months later, two more sexual assaults with a very similar M.O. took place in Fort Gary, a community in Winnipeg, Manitoba. On August 2, 1970, a woman had finished work at a hospital late at night and was on her way home. A man grabbed her from behind and dragged her into the bush. He told her not to scream, bit her on both breasts, and sexually assaulted her. He struck her several times in the face. She tried to fight him off, biting him on the hand and pulling his hair, but he choked her with his arm. The attacker told her to turn over onto her stomach, and then he tied her hands and ankles using her stockings and bra. Before leaving, he took the money from her wallet. Late in the evening of September 19, 1970, a man armed with a knife sexually assaulted a woman in Fort Gary, using her coat to cover her face. People nearby heard the woman's screams and called for police who rushed to the scene capturing the rapist in the act. The man confessed to the sexual assault during which he'd been caught and also to the sexual assault that had taken place on August 2nd. The man admitted he'd just moved from Saskatoon for work in Winnipeg. He was a man with a darker complexion of shorter stature with long dark hair that hung down over his forehead. He was identified as none other than Larry Earl Fisher, the same Larry Earl Fisher who'd used the same bus stop as Gail Miller and had been questioned there after her murder, the same Larry Earl Fisher who lived in the basement of the Cadrain residence with his wife and daughter, the same home at which David Milgard and Ron Wilson had changed clothes before heading out with Albert Cadrain on the morning of Gail Miller's murder. They had him.
1: And they let him go. Yeah. Yeah, like a day after the murder. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. He was there all along.
0: Yeah. Winnipeg police reached out to the Saskatoon cops who said they had no awareness of Fisher other than a brief conversation with him on the morning of Gail Miller's murder. He'd not been suspected of that murder at all, nor was he questioned at this time about it. The police in both jurisdictions compared notes and Fisher fit the description of the alleged attacker in the unsolved assaults in Saskatoon. Cops showed his photo to the victims in Saskatoon but only one, the fourth victim, was able to positively ID him as the man who'd attacked her in the February of that year. Fisher first denied the sexual assaults believed to be connected in Saskatoon. In late October, he owned up to the last sexual assault and the attempted sexual assault in Saskatoon. However, he maintained his innocence regarding the first two victims, which both occurred before Gail Miller was killed. On November 6, 1970, David Milgard's appeal was heard by the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. It cited issues around Nicole John's testimony, especially that the Crown was able to read her earlier very accusatory statement to the jury. On December 30th, 1970, Larry Fisher was charged with the rapes of Saskatoon sexual assault victims one, two, and four, and the indecent assault of the third woman in Saskatoon. On January 5th, 1971, David Milgard's appeal was dismissed by the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. A portion of that decision reads: quote, "The learned trial judge carefully instructed the jury that this statement." which was the subject matter of the cross-examination, was not evidence. He further instructed the jury that the only evidence of Nicole John was that which she gave in the witness box. Such a direction was a proper one. It is to be noted that no objection has been taken by the appellant to the manner in which the learned trial judge instructed the jury in this respect. End quote. The justice's decision continued. Quote, I have reviewed the evidence in detail. I am satisfied the learned trial judge adequately instructed the jury as to the applicable principles of law. In his review of the facts, he was extremely careful and presented them to the jury in a manner that was very fair to the appellant. In my opinion, the jury, in finding the appellant guilty, applied the proper principles of law to the evidence before them. And on such evidence, could properly find the appellant guilty as charged. There are, in my view, no grounds upon which this court would be justified in interfering with the jury's decision. End quote.
1: But wait, the appeal wasn't because the jurors were given wrong instructions. Mm-hmm. The appeal was that there is evidence that had been found, evidence that essentially saying there could have been a different killer. Right. Right. Somebody who's out there doing stuff like this. So in my mind, Milgard should have gotten a
0: new trial then and there. Yeah, but I think what they were looking at was uh, that, too, that the judge had said, ignore that evidence, and he had properly instructed the jury to ignore the the evidence of <laughs> Nicole John saying, not in the court, but to a police officer earlier, that she'd seen David Milgard murdering Gail Miller. Yeah, and they also
1: have this... Other guy now, right? And and that that's the point.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that that's developing. Yeah, the appeals court believed that David Milgard had gotten a fair trial. Milgard's attorneys then aimed to take their case to the Canadian Supreme Court. On May twenty eighth, nineteen seventy one, Larry Fisher pleaded guilty in Winnipeg to charges of two counts of rape, robbery, and possession of an offensive weapon regarding the sexual assaults on the two women in Fort Gary. He was sentenced to 13 years in prison for that. On November 15th, 1971, the Supreme Court of Canada denied David Milgaard's application for leave to appeal, stating that it agreed with the lower court's decision. David was going to stay right where he was.
1: It went all the way to the Supreme, what's the nickname of the Supreme Court? The Court of Last Resort? Yes. And they rejected Mm -hmm. it, right? So when you hit your last resort and it's rejected, it's, um, that's a tough blow. Mm Mm-hmm. But I kind of don't understand the, how they could have. Um, let's talk about the Supreme Court a bit at the end of the show. Sure. Because as,
0: as we all know, Supreme Courts are somewhat in the news right now. Around the world, with yeah. With what's been going on. On December 21st, 1971, Larry Earl Fisher pleaded guilty in Regina Court of Queen's Bench to three charges of rape and one charge of indecent assault relating to his 1968 and 1970 attacks on women in Saskatoon. Fisher was given four years on each of the three sexual assaults and six months for the indecent assault, all sentences to be concurrent with the existing sentence from Manitoba. In the result, no additional time was ordered. There are no news articles about these admissions and convictions, and it isn't clear whether any media were in attendance at all for the proceedings. Milgard. His family and his lawyers were all well aware of Larry Earl Fisher, especially his too-close-for-comfort living arrangements at the time of the murder, in the basement of the Cadrain home. Especially concerning to the Milgaard family is that the proceedings for Fisher's Saskatoon rape pleas, conviction, and sentencing were held in Regina and not in Saskatoon, where the offenses had been committed, which is the typical practice. According to the later inquiry into Milgard's conviction, quote. This arrangement caused the guards in later years to suspect Saskatchewan of seizing the opportunity to dispose of Fisher's charges there quietly so as not to draw attention to the similarity between his offenses and the Gail Miller murder. Quote. The guards began to allege there was a conspiracy to cover up Fisher's possible involvement in Gail Miller's murder. Having convicted the wrong man in such a high-profile case would make a lot of powerful people look very, very bad. And we will be back after this short break. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. We are back. Matthew, what are your thoughts on this episode so far? The death penalty was still legal back then. Wasn't yes, it? it was until 1976. Right. So he could have gotten the death penalty. He could have. Right. Yep. Right. So
1: in cases like this, where they're total tra- travesties of justice, yeah. Right. Underscores to me why I don't support it. Mm-hmm. And, and we've seen time and time again, right? It, it, it's always a combination of things. Like there's either police mishandling or misconduct or new evidence shows up that isn't covered, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if there's been a cover-up, right? There's a cover-up or sometimes there's a refusal to align with the reality that's coming to light. Mm-hmm. And then you have political pressure and all of this stuff, right? I. This is why I don't believe in the death penalty. Right. Because even if we just did,
0: you know, killed one person that wasn't guilty. That's too many. Right. 100%. David Milgaard's conviction was not only devastating to him, obviously, but to his family as well. His mother, Joyce, the strongest advocate and staunch believer in his innocence, later wrote a book about the experience co-authored by crime writer Peter Edwards. It was titled, A Mother's Story, My Battle to Free David Milgard. At the time, the Millgards were living in the tiny town of Langenberg, Saskatchewan, in the rural municipality of Langenberg Number 181, less than 20 kilometers from the Manitoba-Saskatchewan border. Langenberg was where David's dad, Loren, worked as a foreman in the local potash mine. The tiny town was divided by David Milgard's conviction, with many believing strongly in David's guilt. David's siblings were taunted by other kids at school, calling David a killer, and David's teenage brother had to physically defend himself more than once. I
1: wonder if these people rightfully hung their heads in shame after he's eventually exonerated.
0: Maybe some, but I doubt anybody came back and said I'm really sorry that I did that yeah. because most people don't ever go and face up to what they've done yeah. wrong, even though what they're doing is punishing somebody for what they feel their their family member did wrong, which is yeah, Stupid in the first place. It's, well, it's all hypocritical. Yeah. Joyce vowed that she would fight to her dying breath to prove her son's innocence. She admitted her son was troubled, but he was no murderer. Some folks thought she was simply a mother blinded by her love for her son, unwilling to admit that he was capable of such a heinous act as the murder of Gail Miller. But Joyce knew better and was determined to have her son exonerated. She prayed to the God in whom she had the utmost faith that one day... Once the truth was revealed, her David would go free and Gail Miller's true killer would be brought to justice.
1: Imagine how hard that would be. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the world's thinking, oh, the poor mother just can't accept that her son's a killer while well, she like has in her heart the truth.
0: Yeah, It, it would I, have been
1: so hard for her.
0: Yeah, I've seen it a, a bunch of times. There's a movie, uh, a documentary about a young man named Ryan Ferguson, and uh, the documentary is called Dream Killer. And Ryan Ferguson was, uh, 17 years old, um, when a murder was committed. And two years later, a friend of his calls up and says, uh, yeah, me and Ryan Ferguson did it while we were drunk and high. And through all of this, Ryan ends up being convicted of this murder. And through all of it, his father was his most staunch supporter Reminded me a lot of Joyce Milgard. Right. And how she went for it. And eventually Ryan Ferguson was exonerated yeah. for that crime. Interestingly, <laughs> the other guy is still in jail for it, so it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But yeah, anyway, right. that's a long, weird, twisted tale. So watch Dream Killer. It's really good. Okay. David Milgard Prisoner number 289699 understandably had a horrible time in jail. From forensic psychologist Dr. Patrick Bailey in the book Shrunk, Crime and Disorders of the Mind. Quote, a report from the classification interview in March 1970 described David as, quote, a quiet, soft-spoken individual who impresses as being a person who is extremely depressed but hides the depression behind a smile. He repeatedly insists on his innocence and is convinced that the appeal court will verify that this is so. The report also mentioned, quote, "...several older cons who are protecting him and helping him find his way around." Despite the protection he'd had from the older cons early on, when David was moved to Dorchester Penitentiary in New Brunswick in 1972, things took a serious turn for the worse. Even though the majority of the lifers in Stony Mountain believed in David's innocence, The environment in Dorchester was not as welcoming. There were a violent few who did not like what they called skinners, a prison term for rapists and pedophiles. David was seen by some to fit that category. Milgard, a slender 19-year-old by this time, quickly became a target for larger tougher prisoners with chips on their shoulders and David was raped repeatedly and his teeth smashed during vicious beatings. He begged to be put in solitary confinement so he could feel safe from the torture of the seeming constant barrage of threats and actual violence. Interestingly, one of the prisoners who was kind to him was Donald Marshall Jr., the Megma man who was later exonerated and released after 11 years for a murder of which he was innocent. We covered Marshall's case in episode 90 of Dark Routine. My husband
1: always gets really upset when we're watching true crime programs on TV mm-hmm. and the police or anyone else make a statement to people that have been arrested about how, you know, quote things like, oh, you're going to be popular in jail. Yeah. Um. Just because like, just because they're in jail, it doesn't mean they should be subjected to sexual violence. Yeah. And it seems to me as a, as a society, yeah, in general, we don't, Really care about rape culture in prisons? Yeah, uh, I wonder if there are any lawyers or prison staff out there listening. Call, call us. Let us know. Uh, you know, do people ever bring charges against other inmates for rape? I, I'd assume they'd probably be too afraid to do it. And, and if so, are are charges taken seriously in the system?
0: Well, I read an article in I uh, one of the newspapers in Alberta, and it said in 2018 prisoners made. 67 allegations of sexual assault in the five years prior, so between 2013 and 2018. So only 67. And only one of those resulted in a criminal charge. So Mm -hmm. only one. And it's really interesting because in prison, they have this anti-snitch culture as well. So you don't, even if you are uh, a victim s- a victim, and really set upon by these other folks to go ahead and tattle mm. it's so elementary school in some ways, yeah, yeah, like these weird sort of things that uh go on <laughs> yeah that, that go on it's very weirdly immature, <laughs> I don't know what it- like what I'm expecting for a bunch of yeah yeah,
1: yeah. A bunch of, but also some, you know, not everyone in jail is like some violent criminal, right?
0: hmm
1: No. A, and. There the, a lot aren't. And lo and
0: behold, with this story, some are bloody innocent. Right. right? So. Yeah. Only months after being transferred to Dorchester, David was told he was to be transferred westward again, this time to the notoriously hard Stony Mountain Penitentiary, just north of Winnipeg, a 20-minute drive from his folks. A year passed, and the transfer did not materialize. David was feeling more and more hopeless. The Crown prosecutor from David's trial, Mr. Caldwell, wrote the Parole Board of Canada that, in his opinion, David Milgard should never be released as he was dangerous and would likely re-offend. A psychiatrist at Saskatoon's University Hospital had labeled David a sociopathic personality most likely in part as he would not admit to nor take any responsibility for the crime for which he'd been convicted. Wow, that's a catch-22 from Hades. Yeah. If you're innocent and refuse to say
1: that you're guilty, you're labeled a dangerous sociopath. Yep. If you're innocent and say you're guilty to try to maybe get parole, you're (laughs) labeled a murderer for the rest of your life. That's right. Like, it's just a horrible, horrible place to be. Right, like... You can't win. You absolutely cannot win. If you've been found guilty wrongly,
0: Mm -hmm. it is so hard to be not guilty. Yeah. (sighs) According to Dr. Patrick Bailey in Shrunk, over his years of incarceration, quote, David was given a range of mental health diagnoses, including schizoid personality disorder, psychopathic personality type, sociopathic personality disorder, Character Disorder with Strong Antisocial Features Situational Psychotic Illness Schizophrenia Acute Reaction in a Psychopathic Personality Prison Psychosis Acute Schizophrenic Episode Manic Depressive Phase Illness, Disease, or Disorder Substance Abuse Acute Psychotic Reaction Personality Disorder, Other and Unspecified form Psychosis and Major Affective Disorder End Quote However, inconsistently, some psychological evaluations of David concluded there was no evidence at all of any major mental illness. Despondent, David made the first of several attempts to die by suicide. I found that really painful. Yeah, me too. Uh, But it's understandable. Yeah, I mean, I probably would too. The guy's been through all this different
1: courts of appeal. He knows he didn't do anything. All these judgments, all the hatred, all the vile,
0: all the vitriol that he'd get. Mm -hmm. All this horrible stuff happening to him. Yeah. Yeah. In 1973, David saw his options were very limited. He became aware that some other inmates were planning an escape and was determined to tag along. The other prisoners did not want him involved, but David Milgard was undeterred. From Joyce Milgard's book, A Mother's Story quote, David felt so alone and so far from home that he wasn't going to pass up an opportunity, even if the prisoners planning a breakout were a rough group. David had just failed in another suicide attempt, and he wanted out of Dorchester dead or alive. The prisoners plotting the escape could see that David wasn't about to be scared off, so they let him join in. They left dummies in their beds to mislead guards and then overpowered and tied up a guard and scaled a stone wall to freedom. They hid out in a farmhouse of an elderly couple who recognized them from a news bulletin. They tied up the couple and didn't hurt them, but then they fled in the couple's old pickup truck. End quote. The truck broke down and Milgard and the other escapees were arrested after having been tracked by dogs. Milgard later said that the guards had allowed the dogs to, quote, chew on them for a while after they'd been caught. Back at the prison... David claimed he'd been beaten by the guards even more brutally than he had been by any inmate up to that point. When asked why he tried to escape, David later told his mother, quote, I did not want to die in prison. I felt like I was dying a little bit there every day, end quote. Finally, in 1974, David's transfer came through. He was on his way back to Stony Mountain and closer to home. David was learning to play the game in prison. According to the paper Maintaining Innocence, The Prison Experiences of the Wrongfully Convicted by Esty Aziz at the University of Ottawa. In his first 18 months, prison officials recorded 31 institutional offenses, including refusing orders and threatening guards. This behavior likely gained Milgard's status within the prison hierarchy as he learned to mind his own business and to keep to himself while rejecting the authority of the prison administration. He focused on his post-secondary education, and had a desire to, quote, avoid problems, end quote. Do you remember when you were 16? Oh, God, yes, I definitely do. So, and anyone out there who is, you know,
1: 16-year-old kids, you know, a little bit of a rebellion, he's essentially growing up like we all did, Mm -hmm. making mistakes like we all did. But he has to do them
0: in prison, yeah. But doing it within the prison system. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine 16-year-old me in prison. Oh my God. I would have been just a a target. I would have had like a big target painted on my forehead.
1: Yeah. And you wouldn't be mature enough to figure out how to handle life. No. In the prison, right?
0: No. How to, how to protect yourself, how to, you know, avoid problems, as he said. I mean, I was a, I, I had my troubles when I was a teenager, but, um, I was not savvy when it came to anything. I mean, Sure, David had had his little struggles as well, but, I, I, you know, this is grown-up jail. This isn't reform school. Through furthering his education, David realized that he enjoyed writing. David later told CochranNow.com, quote, I was just a young man inside a penitentiary, and the first thing I wanted to do was tell the whole world my story. I ended up getting a typewriter, and I was typing inside the prison where everybody was in open front cells, cages, and people could hear me, and everybody was upset at this young guy trying to type all night, and I'm lucky I'm still alive here to talk to you today. David kept his head down for the next few years while Joyce continued the fight to get her son out of prison. It was beginning to look like the process had started. In the summer of 1980, David was granted a pass to attend a family event. He'd been in jail for more than 11 years at that point. David, though, took the opportunity to flee custody one more time and a nationwide warrant was issued for David Milgard's arrest. Only days later, David sent Joyce a letter with no return address. It read, Dear Mom, where to start and what to say? I am happy but truly wonder what direction I am to go. Should have a job starting Wednesday. It's part-time, four hours, six days a week, but a start. I have met a few people and somehow realize I must practice a better regimen of self-discipline in the sense that, so far, I've been doing or living in a very hedonistic sort of fashion. Freedom is beautiful, and Toronto a place that has a strong pulse, if you like, compared to Winnipeg's nightlife. I keep asking myself, what is my direction? What do I want from life now, and I only come up with to enjoy it. Maybe that will refine itself somehow. I hope so. Tell Father for me that I hope he understands my leaving and that I care for him and hope he knows that. I wish I could come home. Eleven years wanting only that and then putting myself in the position where I can't have what I want most. I love everyone and miss you all. If I could understand why life has been as it has for me, where am I to go in it? Where have I come from? I would be content, but it all makes no sense. I shall continue to seek good in others and do good as I see it. I love you, David. End quote. Joyce later admitted to having visited David in Toronto during his two months of freedom, led there by a series of coded phone calls and messages from her brother who knew where David was. David Milgard's escape was huge news. One person at least saw it as an opportunity to tell the truth. Six days after David's escape on August 28, 1980, Linda Fisher walked into the Saskatoon Police Department. She told him that she believed her ex-husband, Larry Earl Fisher, was in fact responsible for Gail Miller's murder and that from that morning, she was missing a paring knife that resembled the one used in the crime. The report was received, filed, referred, and possibly evaluated on a cursory basis by the Saskatoon police, but it went no further at the time. Yet another opportunity, another opportunity to make this right. Right, but at the same time they think they already have it right maybe this is a woman who is they looked at her as maybe she's this vindictive person yeah but they didn't have it right no but and it, <laughs> what what is also interesting is they didn't look at well hey wait a minute didn't this guy live in the basement of there, the, there's a lot of hey wait a minute moments in here there are so many right yeah David Milgard was taken into custody once again on November 8, 1980, having enjoyed 77 days on the run. A man he'd taken in became wise to the fact that David was hiding something and reported him to police, who quickly figured out who he was. A meeting was set by the man, and police were there too. When someone walking past him called out his name, David ran. He was shot in the back as he fled by a plain-clothes policeman's shotgun. Injured with shotgun pellets dangerously close to his spine, David was taken into custody, hospitalized, and then sent back to prison when he was well enough.
1: Holy crap. Yep. So he was shot in the back by the police. Right. Literally. Yeah. After being stabbed in the back figuratively by the system. Yes. Yep. This just gets, this just... It's bizarre. Hold on, just let me collect myself. Yeah. This just keeps getting worse and worse. And you know what? I can't blame them for trying to get out of jail. If I was if I was innocent mm-hmm. and all of my appeals were lost, I'd probably try to break out as well because I wasn't in there for the right reason and I, did do, I didn't do anything wrong.
0: But then there's also this culture that says only the guilty run.
1: Well, we now know that the innocent run as well.
0: Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Joyce redoubled her efforts, offering a $10,000 reward for any information leading to Gail Miller's real killer and subsequently her son's exoneration. There were all kinds of crazies who came out of the woodwork trying to claim the $10,000 with elaborate but false stories. Joyce went over and over the court transcripts of David's trial looking for something solid to free David. According to author Helena Katz in her book Justice Miscarried, in 1986, Joyce Milgard gave well-known criminal lawyer Hirsch Walsh her last $2,000 to review the court transcripts to look for grounds to apply to the federal justice minister for the, quote, mercy of the crown under what, has, what was then Section 617, now Section 696.1 of the criminal code. This provision gave the minister the sole discretion to order a new trial. Or give Milgard another chance to appeal his conviction to the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. Finding enough compelling evidence to prove Milgard's innocence and persuade the minister to overturn Milgard's conviction proved to be an overwhelming task. No organization or agency existed to help the Milgards gather the information they needed, and Legal Aid in Manitoba and Saskatchewan refused to fund lawyers and investigators. End quote. Around the same time, Joyce and crew found Deborah Hall, who'd been in the motel room during David Milgard's supposed confession that had been recounted at his trial by Craig Melnick and George Lapchuk. Hall, who claimed she remembered the night clearly, said David never confessed and the recounting by Melnick and Lapchuk was false. She'd never been questioned by police. Forensic DNA analysis was also fast becoming more accepted in courts and samples taken from the crime scene were given to Vancouver pathologist Dr. James Ferris for testing. Although Ferris was concerned about the chain of evidence, the samples had been collected four days after the murder, he determined that they had not been placed there by David Milgard. In December of 1988, with the new evidence, David's lawyers applied to have David's case reopened. A year and a half later, Armed with Ferris's report, Joyce, frustrated with the government's inaction, approached and was very publicly snubbed by Kim Campbell, who was then the federal justice minister and later, very briefly, prime minister of Canada. In February of 1991, Kim Campbell refused the request to reopen David's case. I, rather embarrassingly,
1: Mike, did some work on Kim Campbell's election campaign back then. Oh, no. I was a very young man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, election that she lost. And in fact, the conservative party was
0: pretty much wiped out for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kim Campbell, I watched the video of the interaction between her and Joyce Milgaard. And I was, I understand why Kim Campbell did not want to engage with Joyce Milgaard in front of the media because, it wouldn't have been the proper process. And she's a politician. And she's a politician. But also, um, that aside, that she it was probably against the process, but the way Kim Campbell dismissed Joyce Millgard is so hard to watch. You can find it in the documentary that The Fifth Estate did on this. It's on YouTube. But um, essentially... Kim Campbell just swats uh, Joyce Milgaard aside like she's an irritating fly. Mm. Uh, Not like, she didn't hit her or anything, but just like... The demeanor of it all. The demeanor was, she just was like, this is a fly. And as she's, as Kim Campbell is muttering, Kim Campbell is muttering as she walks away saying, you know, if you want this dealt with, we have to do it the proper way. Instead of stopping and having a conversation with a mother... Yeah. And saying, you know, you know, but you know, this guy's in jail, he's a murderer, he's a yeah. convicted murderer. How's this going to look in the media when I, when I'm up for re-election? Yeah. If this guy is actually a murderer. <sighs> <laughs> Joyce Milgard refused to give up. From Helena Katz and her book Justice Miscarried, quote, Milgard's supporters used a media campaign to gain public support for a review of his case. Since authorities didn't seem to be listening, they hoped that public support for his pleas of innocence would get attention for his case and influence the Justice Minister. On September 7, 1991, they held a candlelight vigil outside a Winnipeg hotel where Prime Minister Brian Mulroney was expected. The group lit one candle for each of the 22 years that Milgard had spent behind bars. When Mulroney stepped out of his car, he greeted Joyce Milgard and spoke with her briefly. She told him that her son's emotional state was deteriorating and asked if the Prime Minister might help get him transferred from Stony Mountain. She also asked if a speedy review of his case was possible. Mulroney told her that she was courageous. A month later, David Milgard was transferred to Rockwood Institution, a minimum security prison beside Stony Mountain. End quote. New hearings were finally granted. The case would be reopened in November of 1991. At the hearings, Ron Wilson recanted his testimony about seeing blood on David Milgard's clothing and his supposed behavior after returning to the car that morning all those years ago. Milgard testified too, again professing his innocence. The eerily similar sexual assaults committed by Larry Earl Fisher around the time of Gail Miller's murder were also a big focus of the proceedings. On April 14, 1992, the Supreme Court of Canada ordered a new trial for David Milgard. The province of Saskatchewan stayed proceedings, saying they didn't want to try him again. David Milgard was released on April 16, 1992. He was then 39 years old and had spent 23 of those behind bars, for something he had not done. A lawsuit was filed on David's behalf against the Saskatoon police officers and Saskatoon justice officials. The Saskatchewan Deputy Minister of Justice referred allegations of wrongdoing in the handling of David Milgard's case to the RCMP for investigation. The Deputy Attorney General of Alberta was asked to direct the RCMP investigation and make any charging decisions. Over the next two years, a team of 10 RCMP officers conducted an extensive investigation into 68 allegations of wrongdoing against the police and Crown officials. The Saskatchewan Deputy Minister of Justice made public the appeals of the RCMP investigation and the Alberta Justice Report, concluding there was no criminal wrongdoing nor any attempt to obstruct justice in the investigation or prosecution of David Milgard. The full RCMP report was later released to the public on July twelfth, nineteen ninety five.
1: So, if that report can be trusted, mm-hmm. which many can question, right? Um, you know, because I, you know, I can't. St- I'm not saying this happened, but I can't stand the closing of ranks BS that happens. Mm-hmm. You know, if that was the case here, cops aren't there to protect other cops; they're there to protect us. Right. Right. And if there was nothing that was done wrong, you know, in terms of nobody should get charged with anything, right, then it was just complete and total ineptitude on a massive scale. And that doesn't say much easier, right, that th- much either,
0: right? So, in defense of
1: the police, and, and yeah, and I don't know, right, I don't know all the details. That's why I'm kind of like leaving it open, but we've seen it before.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? So. But this is the thing in defense of the police, you have witnesses who are saying, Milgard said this. I saw Milgard do this, even though I'm not gonna willing to testify about that. It is like, so they, they're going by what these kids. Stone teenagers. <laughs> stone teenagers who are, who are telling different stories, probably because at different points in the, inter- in the interviews, they're afraid. Yeah. They become afraid and think, oh dear, if I don't go along with this, I'm not going to be, I'm going to be charged myself or maybe I'm going to be shunned by this community of kids. Yeah. You know, who are saying that this is what happened. Yeah. It's like a whole, I mean, it would have been a tough job. I give them that it Mm
1: -hmm. would have been a really tough job. Yep. But when you look back, right. at All these opportunities.
0: Yeah. mm. On July 18th, 1997, the results of DNA testing conducted by the forensic science service in the United Kingdom Indicated that the semen found on Gail Miller's panties and dress could not have originated from David Milgard and that it matched Larry Earl Fisher's DNA profile. The same day, the Department of Justice in Canada stated that the results of DNA testing show that a terrible wrong was done to David Milgard by his wrongful conviction. The federal Minister of Justice expressed her sympathies and regrets to David Milgard and his family. As well that day the Saskatchewan Minister of Justice stated that a wrong of the most serious kind has been done to David Milgard by the justice system and he apologized. He also stated that the wrongful conviction would require compensation. A public inquiry was ordered and of course the police investigation into the case had been reopened. Larry Earl Fisher was arrested and charged with the rape and murder of Gail Miller a week later. On May 17, 1999, David Milgaard was awarded $10 million in compensation for his wrongful conviction. From the Vancouver Sun on May 18, 1999, quote, Joyce Milgaard said her son and the family now need space and time to continue healing. We've been living in a fishbowl and we'd kind of like to get out of that fishbowl, his mother said. Under the settlement, Milgard would receive $9.25 million for pain and suffering, lost income, out-of-pocket expenses, and legal fees. He had already received $500,000 in interim compensation and would receive a lump sum payment of $8.75 million in a few weeks. Milgard's mother, who worked tirelessly in securing her son's release from prison, received $750,000. Government officials said most, if not all, of payments would be tax-free, end quote. At the end of her book, Joyce Milgard spoke about feeling uncomfortable being called a hero for doing what she saw was the only thing that could be done. She wrote, quote, It wasn't Canada that hurt our David. It was a few people who held power in the province of Saskatchewan. I remain intensely proud of being Canadian. Canadians from coast to coast join me in praying for David's release and I still feel that outpouring of love and it makes me strong. David's future won't be easy, but I'm optimistic. We love David through all of those years in prison and we'll love him through the rest of this and he'll make it. End quote. The same evidence that had exonerated David Milgard convicted Larry Earl Fisher. On November 22, 1999, after a trial, Fisher was found guilty of the murder of Gail Miller and sentenced to life. Fisher's appeal was denied in September of 2003. In January of 2005, the year long judicial inquiry into David Milgard's wrongful conviction began. More than 36 years had passed. It reviewed testimony of 200 witnesses and over 150,000 pages of documentary evidence. From constitutionalstudies.ca, quote, According to Justice Edward McCallum, who headed the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the wrongful conviction of David Milgard, the criminal justice system failed David Milgard. The 815-page report does not explain exactly why Milgard was wrongfully convicted. Nevertheless, Judge McCallum points to Art Roberts, a polygraph expert, brought in from Calgary as having perhaps pressured Milgard's friends, Nicole, John, and Ron Wilson, to lie during their examination by police. McCallum did find, in his conclusion, that the police acted in, quote, good faith, and that there was not malfeasance on their part. The inquiry called for Parliament to create a new independent body with the goal of reviewing allegations of wrongful conviction. With the existence of such an agency, commissions of inquiry, such as the $10 million commission led by Justice McCallum, could have been avoided. If significant public expenditure can be avoided by the establishment of a truly independent, transparent, and effective investigative agency, then it should be done. End quote. David Milgard became well known and respected for his post exoneration activities, helping those wrongfully convicted. In 2020, more than 50 years after Milgard's wrongful conviction, the University of Manitoba presented him with an honorary Doctor of Law degree. Milgard told Cochrane now, quote, "The thing that keeps me busy now is I talk across the country, mostly at universities and also at conferences and stuff." I try to tell young people that are moving toward becoming a service to others inside the justice community in relation to justice issues and perspectives how important it is for them to, first of all, be responsible not to do anything wrong, and second of all, to keep that passion up they need to have there to help others and make a difference in people's lives, End quote. David spoke about his continued struggles to do just normal things. When asked about what his children know, he said, quote, they know my story quite well. My son has actually heard me talk to high school students here in Cochrane and made me feel like a million dollars. After I talked, he said, Dad, I really appreciate your talk today. I asked, why did you like it? And he said it was loud and it was important about things that make a difference. And that made me feel really good, end quote. Milgard did do so much good after he was released, and I have a lot of admiration for him. The case, a serious miscarriage of justice, is without a doubt one of the most egregious examples of police tunnel vision in Canadian history. Milgard's case was made even more famous with books, films, TV and news coverage, and even a song. Wheat Kings, by the Tragically Hip on their 1992 album Fully Completely, was the inspiration for the loons at the beginning of every episode of Dark Poutine. The song itself was inspired by the case of David Milgard and Gail Miller. In the tune, the late great Gord Downey can be heard singing 20 years for nothing. Well, that's nothing new besides there's no one interested in something you didn't do. And further on, late-breaking story on the CBC, A Nation Whispers, We always knew he'd go free. They add, You can't be fond of living in the past, because if you are, then there's no way you're going to last. End quote. I'd been planning to cover this case for some time, and I was hoping to perhaps interview David Milgard for the show, but it never happened. Sadly, Mr. Milgard, an outspoken advocate for the wrongly convicted, passed away in a Calgary hospital on May 15th of this year after a short illness and complications from pneumonia. David Milgard is survived by his wife, Christina, whom he married after his release, and their two teenage children.
1: I was so sad to see that he had passed. And... Yeah. My condolences to his family. Mm. You, you know, in the end, he was a really great guy. Right. He, he did so much good over the years after he got out. He could he, have he just... He could have been a bitter, bitter, horrible person. Mm-hmm. He got out there and yeah. he tried to help. Like, can you imagine?
0: Would you do that?
1: Would you be able to?
0: I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I like to think that I would yeah. if, if I had gone through it, but... Maybe I would just sit on my $10 million and yeah, just go you know, fishing. Flip everybody the bird. Yeah. You know, why not? I mean, he had every right to do that. Yeah. If he wanted to, he could have just. Nobody would have judged him on that. Either. No, everybody I... would have said, yeah, good for him. Yeah, but he did a lot of good out there. Yeah. Hopefully, in these episodes, we've done the memories of both Gail Miller and David Milgard, for want of a better term, a bit of justice. Larry Earl Fisher, 65. Died on June 10th, 2015, at Pacific Institution in Abbotsford, where he was serving his sentence for Gail Miller's murder. A reminder Fisher served only 16 years for the crime, while David had spent 23 years behind bars for the same thing. And that's it for Dark Poutine, episode 225 Tragedy Times Two Gail Miller and David Milgard, part two. Wow. That's, um,
1: yeah. That was a big one, Mike. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, the the Supreme Court had, had a chance, you know, mu- very early on in this to to get David a new trial, but they didn't. I mean, in, yeah. in, in the end, they made it good mm-hmm. quite late, though. And, you know, with all the news about the Supreme Court in the USA right now, uh. Uh, I embarrassingly realized during this episode that, um, while I can name a lot of the U.S. Supreme Court judges... Yeah. I could only name the chief justice here in Canada. Who is? And his name is Wagner. Okay. And um, Richard Wagner. And and I was like, wow, that's, these are the people that sort of set the rules for me. And I don't know who any of them are. Yeah. And uh, I bet a lot of our Canadian listeners... Um, wouldn't even be able to tell you how many judges we have on the Supreme Court, let alone who they are. They're right. not. They're, there are there are nine of them, by the way. Mm-hmm. Or realize that there's, and we're going to talk about this in the after show, Mike. There is no governing legislation on how the Supreme Court justices in Canada are selected, except except that three of them have to be um, from Quebec, of course. And so we've essentially been doing it ad hoc since 1875, <laughs> like just muddling along and um you know with the, with this growing discussion about supreme courts and and roe versus wade and and the gun legis- the gun rules in, in america um you know i, I think it's incredibly interesting so uh, we're going to talk about it uh in some more detail both about the supreme court in canada and what's happening in the united states in the after show um pa- only sorry guys only patreons have access to the yeah five, five dollars but plus. if you become a five dollar patron you can the added bonus content
0: yes yeah yes so please do that because we yeah. love you and we want you to <laughs> mikey needs to eat <laughs> mikey won't eat it he doesn't eat anything you know that is the one thing there's commercials that people have and i guess it's called the mandela effect yeah and one mandela effect thing is about that tv commercial mm-hmm. they, they they people say oh mike mikey will eat it he'll eat anything no that's not what the commercial said they gave him this life cereal and mike and they were saying let's give this to mikey he won't eat it he doesn't eat anything mm-hmm. and he eats it and that's why they say he likes it he really likes it
1: other cereals available
0: other cereals available <laughs> yes because we're not selling life cereal but anyway does it still exist yeah it still exists okay yeah, but the Mandela effect is yeah. really interesting. If you're not familiar with the Mandela effect, look it up. Some of the things that you think you know, you really don't know. It's pretty fascinating. Like some people were like, Nelson Mandela died in jail. No, he didn't. <laughs> no, he did not. Well, that's...
1: Who who thinks Nelson Mandela died in jail? A,
0: a lot of people. Wow! Read read people. Yeah, Yeah, look at the news. This read. It's not in your own province (laughs) or state. Anyway, on to voicemails. But first, let's hear from our sponsors. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one eight seven dark We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. And here is our first voicemail. So let's take a listen. Oh, hey there, fellas. It's
1: your old pal, Satan. Just calling to wish you a happy belated birthday, Matthew. Well, I guess it'll be belated by the time you get this message. Anywho, also, in a recent show, you talked about the murder of Gail Miller, and you mentioned the origin of the loon call at the beginning of your show. Well, I can tell you exactly what song that comes from, Wheat Kings by The Tragically Hip. In fact, we play that song here in hell all the time. Like, literally, it's uh, on a loop. Anywho, I'm sure your listeners don't know where it's from or don't care, and I guess it just goes to show that no one's interested in something you didn't do. Uh, give my to love to Steve, would you?
0: Okay, bye. Well, thanks for calling Satan. Thanks, but, Satan. But we scooped your we scooped your voicemail. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> um
1: yeah. But I have to say to Satan that um, in my hell, the tragically hip would be played all the time.
0: Well, that's what this guy's saying. So he probably
1: <laughs> I don't. Everyone talks about them. I don't even really know what they're saying. But because everyone talks about them all the time, I don't want to know.
0: I love the tragically hip, Matthew. Anyway, oh,
1: Mike. What, you know, even though I played Rock versus Opera, Dolly Deluxe for you while well, you're in the car with me.
0: My tastes are eclectic. They are I actually. Say? You, have, yeah. you actually have a very,
1: very eclectic taste and and a lot of it is very good. <laughs> thank you.
0: Oh, the stuff that I agree with.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway,
0: well, thank you, Satan. Thank you, Satan. Uh, and uh, I guess tell Mussolini and Hitler hello. <laughs> Boy, oh, boy. Let's move on. Uh, here's our second voicemail. Greetings, Mike and Matthew. Uh, my name is Bo, and I'm from Vancouver. But I am calling you from Tuck to Yuck Tuck. Uh, I'm actually on a quest to drive every highway in Canada. And uh, this year, I finally made it up to Tuck, which I promised when I did, I would uh, give you guys a call and leave a voicemail. Uh, while I explore the country, um, drive through all these communities, I love listening to you guys, um, t- filling me in on some of the dark history or events behind some of these places, uh, especially hearing about um, some of the cases that have had an impact on my life and uh, my own communities. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to thank you guys for uh, keeping me entertained uh, during my trip. Uh, oh, and uh, go poop in your tooth, <laughs> Well, Wow. Thank he's you, Bo. Driving every highway in Canada. That's really cool. I wonder if he's doing it with his brother, Luke. L- Bo
1: and Luke do. Duke. Yeah, he, I'm sorry, Bo, you probably have gotten that. Actually, you sound younger, you might not know it, but you've probably gotten that a million times. Maybe. That is
0: amazing. I'd love to do that. Yeah, it, it would be a really fun thing to do. Um, we've driven some highways together. We just drove the I- Five and the four hundred five in Washington, and, State. and a million side roads because and a million uh, yeah because ways ways took you there took yeah well ways took us around a, a really serious accident on the highway.
1: Other mapping systems available.
0: <laughs> um, well, I'd love to actually do ads <laughs> for Ways to tell you the truth because because they're actually it's actually really good. Well, it's what I use exclusively. Yeah, yeah. So. But uh, thank you, Bo. That's mm-hmm. great.
1: I wonder where, where he's headed next.
0: I don't know, but Bo should be doing a podcast about his travels. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be very cool. And uh, if you do one, Bo, let us know and we'll play the promo for you, uh, for your show on this show. Can you imagine doing a podcast from the car? Yes. <laughs> That'd be cool. I've thought about doing stuff like that. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. We have one more voicemail to... Listen to, let's take a boo.
1: Hi, uh, this is uh, Dave from Saskatoon. Uh, Just listen listen to your part one of the David Milgaard, Gail Miller. Uh, Just wanted to say that uh, I've actually been wanting to recommend that one, so I'm glad that you're doing it. Looking forward to part two. And uh, Matt, uh, you're talking about about, uh, why do they uh, do Alphabet Land? I can't answer that, but um, alphabet land is also known as the hood. Uh, there's lots of, uh, that's where all the drugs and gangs and prostitutes. Uh, uh, so it's not, that's nice of uh, Saskatoon. Yeah. So keep up the good work. I look forward to part two and go shitting your hat.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thanks, Dave. I hope you like the part two. Yeah. Um, alphabet land. I didn't know it was called that. So all this, the, all the streets that are named All the streets lazily, have no name. yeah. <laughs> lazily with letters and
1: numbers. Okay. So I guess I didn't see that part of Saskatoon because when I went mm-hmm. a couple of times, it was just this beautiful, like, maybe I was just in the, the fun and the nice, but I, sure. lo- I loved Saskatoon.
0: Every, every town has a other side of the track. an alphabet land.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, uh... There's even an alphabet land in my head. I'm
0: certain there is. I don't go into my head very often. It's in a bad neighborhood and I'll get mugged. Yep. I say that, I say that, uh, say that too. It, I don't go into my brain alone because I get mugged for my milk money every time I go in there. Anyway, thanks for the call, Dave. All righty. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All right, it is time for Patreon and Donut Money Donor shout-outs. Yay. And first up, we have... Drumroll. Lucia Borges. Lucia Borges. So, Lucia, where is Lucia from?
1: Lucia is from a small town
0: in surrey england okay called christmas pie christmas pie in surrey england <laughs> i love that i want to go to christmas pie i now also want to go to christmas pie what is christmas pie i i know what christmas Cake is, but I don't think I've ever had a Christmas pie. Have you? It's pie that you have on Christmas. Well, day. I get that. <laughs> is it like little
1: butter tarts or I've, is it a I've, large butter tart? I've never had it. I haven't had anything specifically called
0: Christmas pie before. No, me neither. Huh. Now we need to discover what Christmas pie is. I bet it has lots of nice things in it. So Lucia is from Christmas pie. They're from Christmas pie. And what does Lucia do in Christmas pie? Bakes. Bakes. Bakes the Christmas pies. Well, there
1: you go. (laughs) So maybe, maybe Lucia can tell us what is in a Christmas
0: pie. Well, I'm sure that Lucia might do that for us if they're up to it. So hopefully Lucia, you tell us what Christmas pie is because now we're curious and hungry.
1: Snap to it. Six, <laughs> six more months till Christmas.
0: Exactly, only six more months. <laughs> Actually, six almost to the day. <laughs> and speaking of Christmas, I met this person around Christmas time in Nova Scotia. Our next patron. Okay. She is Rebecca Cowperthwaite. Rebecca Cowperthwaite. And she's a good, good, good friend of oh, my sister Rachel Brown. Hello.
1: Shout out to Rachel and, and Rebecca.
0: Yeah. And uh, thank you so much, Rebecca, for becoming a patron of the show. Rebecca also brought really tasty, yummy treats to my sister's place while I was there. Did she bring a Christmas pie? She didn't bring a Christmas (laughs) pie. But maybe Rebecca knows what a Christmas pie is. If she's a good baker, maybe she does. Rebecca looks after my sister's dog, Dexter, sometimes. oh Yeah, Dexter. He's a good old dog. Did she name him after the show? I do believe he's named after the serial
1: killer. Oh, what was the name of the cat that that the girls brought to the uh, to the meet
0: yesterday? I he was Drax. Drax, he's so sweet. Yeah, he's a Bengal. He's very, very yeah, sweet. So, so they brought him in a backpack.
1: Yeah, with like a, like not not just a normal backpack, like <laughs> like, like air holes and stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was so so nice to have have uh, somebody from the barnyard as well.
0: Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So Rebecca lives in Upper LaHave, Nova Scotia, which is beautiful, by the way. I love Upper Lahave. Is there Lower La There is. Okay. There's all kinds of Lahave. I bet you you're from Lower La No, I'm from Bridgewater, which is, oh. on, it's on the Lahave. Okay. But anyway, uh, I know what Rebecca does for a living, but Matthew, I think she does something on the side. So what is it that Rebecca does on the side? She is an armed dealer. An arms dealer. Yes. So, does she sell guns or does she sell no the big shit? Oh, so she sells like like, uh, like mannequin arms, like air to surface to air missiles. Oh, like weaponry. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I I thought you were going to say mannequin arms for crafting. No, no, she's an arms dealer. So she sells nukes. Well, no, no,
1: she doesn't. She doesn't delve in nukes. Oh, okay, good she, for she her. Draws
0: a she draws the line. Draws the line at nuclear weapons. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yep so missiles,
1: missile systems, yeah, so she she votes um ag- against um who she actually wants to be in power because she needs to drum up business.
0: <laughs> You're terrible.
1: no, she is for selling arms. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just kidding
0: Rebecca, we know we you don't sell arms. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> uh, next from Winnipeg. Manitoba, the peg. We have Guinevere Vanderveen. Hi, Guinevere. Thank you so much. Guinevere is a really lovely name. It it, is, it's a gorgeous name. Actually. It just o- obviously reminds me of uh, death, uh, the death of King Arthur. Uh, okay. Yeah, La Mort de Arthur, because mm-hmm. there's a Guinevere in in that. There is indeed. Yes. Probably one of the early Guineveres. One of the, probably the first Guineveres, yeah. you would think. But anyway, what does Guinevere do there in the peg? She's a professor of history. Oh, what kind of history? We've had a history professor before. Have we? Well, yes. I like history professors. Yes, clearly. But what what sort of history does she teach specifically?
1: History about kings because her name is Guinevere.
0: Oh, there you go. It, it, it's funny how we do tend to become interested in things that are related to ourselves. And I'm not saying... because I'm reading a lot of history right now. <laughs> right. I have it on the brain. So that's why everybody's a history professor. But there's only been two now. <laughs> Don't get snotty. <laughs> oh, dear. So next up, we have someone who we're unsure of where they are from or who they are, really, because all they put their name down as is Tovia. Tovia. T O V Y A. Thank you, you, Tovia. Tovia. And I'm I was just having a conversation with Matthew. I'm a bit dyslexic. Interesting. A person would choose writing and reading as a as a career is a little dyslexic. So I misread Tovia as Tanya, which is interesting. But Hello Tovia. So so Tovia, what? Well, where is Tovia from first? She's from it's not she. Let's just say they.
1: Okay. Tovia is from Hungry Horse, Montana.
0: Hungry Horse, Montana? Yes. That's in the USA. Well, yes, I know that Montana is in the United States of America. Yeah. So Tovia comes from Hungry Horse. Hungry Horse. Yes. Wow. And what does Tovia do in Hungry Horse besides feed horses?
1: You always do that to
0: me. I do because I know that you're going to take the easy way. Is there oil in Montana? I don't know. Probably. There's oil pretty much everywhere. I mean, there's vegetable oil in the store. (laughs) is an oil magnate. Tovia is an oil magnate. Getting richer by the day these days. There you go. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Tovia. Thanks, Tovia. Thank you so much for
1: becoming a Patreon. Much
0: appreciated. It really is.
1: Um, But we know you're an oil magnate, so keep it coming.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Next, we have Demetria Milton- And Demetria is from Rowlett, Texas. Demetria is from Rowlett, Texas. Demetria is from Rowlett, Texas.
1: Demeter. Demetria.
0: I just think of Peter Demeter. I I wonder um, if Demetria has Greek heritage.
1: Could be. So Demetria
0: runs a Greek restaurant. Okay. There you go. I love Greek restaurants. Um, What's your favorite thing at a Greek restaurant?
1: Baklava. Baklava.
0: Baklava is really good. <laughs> um, I like what I like to say uh, from a Greek restaurant is pita. Mm. Do you know what I call it? What spanky pitas. Spanky penis?
1: <laughs> no, spanky pita. Spanky pitas. Oh, okay. Whenever I'm in a in a, a Greek restaurant. Oh, I
0: thought you said spanky penis. You're just disgusting. Well, I was thinking of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. Yeah. No, not really. I was just thinking of dungeons. <laughs> Spanky Peters yeah. and baklava. The, yeah. The well, two best things. So, Demetria Milton, thank you. F- uh, and I hope your Greek restaurant is recovering from the uh, pandemic quite handily, but I'm sure you'll be fine.
1: If, if we live nearby, it would be doing great.
0: <laughs> I went to a Greek restaurant one time where on Fridays they actually smash plates into the fire fireplace.
1: And yell, Opa! Yeah, exactly. I it was that. really, really cool. I worked for a Greek family in a restaurant. It wasn't a Greek restaurant. But after we closed at night, the family'd <laughs> make some, like, a Greek meal. Oh. And we'd all, like, all the workers would gather around the table and, and, and eat together when we were done. It was fantastic.
0: That's really cool. Yeah. So I guess it's time to move on to donut money donors. And uh, there's some interesting donors this week. Um, well, one sounds like okay. This is great because it's Carla Harvey. She's from, Hello Carla Harvey. She's from Halifax, Nova Scotia. And Carla says, Hi Mike and Matthew, just wanted to say thank you for creating this podcast and delivering such interesting content to us listeners on the regular. It's so nice to have a podcast dedicated to more local true crime where a lot of podcasts focus on American true crime. Well, there you go. And that's why I made the show. As a Nova Scotian, I also appreciate the cases that are specifically from our province. Continue being awesome. Have some donuts on me. Smiley face, Carla Harvey. And thank you, Carla. We did have some donuts on you yesterday. We Uh, did. At the, uh, at the meetup, we had, uh, mochi nut donuts, which were amazing. Are there donuts available? I, I had mochi nut donuts this morning for my breakfast. Did you eat all of them? No,
1: just one. Okay, I saw the box in the garbage, and I was like, Mike ate all of
0: them. No, no, the box isn't in the garbage, it's in the fridge. Oh, something else was then. It's a big, it's a big thing. And next up, we had some donut money from a fetish website.
1: (laughs) That's fantastic.
0: It's really weird. Yeah, it's kind of cool, why not? And I think maybe, I don't know, uh, it's interesting we're, we're not going to say the name of it
1: because um, thank you so much for, for the money. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll have to pay us a lot more to um, promote the website. <laughs> right. If you want, yeah. Can, it's you gonna... write, can you write it down for me, please, so I can you, look it up? Later.
0: Yes, I definitely yes. will. Thank you. Uh, but they're from apparently Duncan, British Columbia. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I'll be logging on and taking a look. They sell dirty underwear. Okay. <laughs> all, and and I by dirty, I mean all kinds of different kinds oh, of dirty. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, everyone has a fetish. Yep.
1: I don't judge.
0: Yeah. But yeah, for us to say the name of <laughs> your fetishy site... <laughs> Is gonna cost you um, one
1: million dollars, <laughs> a, a lot more money. But thank you so much. But this, nice try. Nice. Yeah, try. I, I, actually, I just, you had us, you had us having a, a fun time here. Yeah.
0: talking about this. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And I don't, don't think it's something that I would necessarily buy. But uh, anyway, uh, to each their own. Absolutely. Yeah. Love is love, right, Matthew? Even if it's dirty and underwear. Fetish is fetish. <laughs> yeah. I have weird fetishes. Uh, maybe, maybe like, that's what we should talk about in the I after like big,
1: show. I like big noses. What you you've met Justin? Justin has. Has a good nose, a strong. I, nose. I, it's maybe it's not fashion. I just, I'm attracted to, to men with big noses.
0: Well, you would have liked my cousin Rob, really? the figure skater. Okay. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. Because well, I told you, we called him the, oh, yeah, the schnoz. Oh, <laughs> yeah. the And <laughs> yeah, a- no, no, not because it like relates to anything else. I just, I just like a proper nose on a man's face. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Are you having okay time over there? Are you, yeah, I'm just you, dropping. Your, your stuff. Drink is dropping.
0: Okay. But that's it for Patreon and Donut Money Donors. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate it. We do. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money Donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Well, that is it for this episode. We really appreciate that you folks gave us a listen. Mm. And, uh, yeah, David Milgard, I had, as I've mentioned before, I was planning this episode pretty much from the inception of Dark Poutine, and I'm really glad we got to do it, uh, in this way as a two-parter. Yeah. Yeah. So until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye everybody. Bye.